Father God, we thank you for the story that continues, and we're thankful that we get to be part of it. We thank you, Lord, for the story of, of life, the stories of, of setbacks and deaths that we overcome, the story of new life again. We thank you, Lord, for appointing us for meaning. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. Uh, so the story of Christ's resurrection has been going now somewhere between, I don't know, depending on how you date it, 2010, 2015, or 16 years, and we are still undefeated. How many of you feel undefeated in life? Now, I don't, I don't think you get to feel undefeated unless you have felt hard-pressed, unless you've been in the contest. You know what I'm saying? Right? So how many of you feel uh, knocked about but undefeated? I'm sorry. That, that sucked. <laughs> how many of you feel knocked about but still undefeated? Yeah! All right, you guys stand up. Go ahead. You guys stand up. And you get to assume a posture of undefeat on three. I'm going to give you a few moments to think about it. And then you're going to assume a posture of undefeat, and you're going to turn 360 degrees to show off. All right? Yeah. All right. You got your posture? One, two, three. Undefeated. High fives all around. Over 2,000 years, baby. A Blue Water Mission, we like to do warm-ups. That's a warm-up. Faith is an attitude, and your attitude is the most contagious thing about you. What, what's, what's a better story while we're on the subject? What's a better story? Uh, you know, uh, a story of, of complete dominance, like, uh, you know, so-and-so so was born, uh, had a perfect childhood, uh, married, let's say, married the, the girl next door, and they lived happily ever after and were rich and had six successful children. Good story, bad story. You wouldn't rent that story from Netflix. Right? You wouldn't. There's a, there's sort of a, there's a way that we tell those stories. You know, so-and-so is born, some guy is born, uh, has, a, has a rough childhood, falls in love with the girl next door. She's a little bit too good for him. Some tragedy happens. They have to overcome all of these challenges. Just when you think they've made it, things fall apart. They have to redeem the situation and only live happily ever after because of battles they've overcome. And then they pass their legacy of overcoming on to their children. How about that? Yeah. Infinitely better infinitely better. And so I think there's a powerful truism in life, in life that perfect stories have to be imperfect. Right? To be truly perfect, to be a perfect and powerful story, you have to have vast imperfections. And, and, and the greater the imperfections, then the more perfect the story can be at the end. Am I right? 
Think of it as sports stories. What's, what's a better sports story? The team that completely dominates every other team over the season and emerges undefeated, or the team that gets bruised and battered in the championship game, falls way behind, you know, all these injuries, they have to overcome unfairness and somehow win on the last play. What's the better story? The Cubs. <laughs> Enough said. Well, the Easter story, of course, is a perfect story. It's a perfect story precisely because it's such a vastly imperfect story. I mean, the whole thing. And that's the reason, one of the big reasons, that it's so powerful. Often we, we complain at God, don't we, as a race. Why are things so hard in the world? Why are things so messy? Well, things have to be messy in order that the story be as perfect as possible in the end. And things are vastly messy oftentimes, aren't they? There's a story of humanity that we read in Scripture. As a church, we've been going through the Bible, not like verse by verse. We've been doing this sermon series on the grand arc of Scripture and kind of taking it in big chunks and big themes so that we understand the truth in the whole context and not just in little pieces. And the story of humanity is a very imperfect story in the way that we're talking about you know, we get, we get created, but we, we ruin things in a, in a terrible way with terrible repercussions, suffering, and death. And the problem was, even though we knew God existed, even though we were walking with God back in the day, we didn't trust His character. So really, the story is about a failure of trust. We failed in trust. A lot of bad things happened. Coincidentally enough, the challenging things that happened are the perfect context for growing in trust because trust doesn't grow unless there are challenges and risk. Trust doesn't grow unless you have to trust in something that you cannot see, trust in an outcome that you don't have yet, etc. That's the story of humanity and God that the Bible is telling us. But what a story. It's tragic. It's, it's devastating. It's soaring. And all the more beautiful, I think, because of the drama. All the more beautiful because of the vast imperfection that's in it. Another word for beauty for me is meaning. Something is beautiful when it's meaningful. I would define beauty as the condition which shows its element parts in the most understandable form. Something is beautiful when you look at it and it's a revelation to you in some sense. Wow, that's how it ought to be. I get it now. And that's really the story that God is telling us uh, with us in Scripture. Here's the principle, I think. If there's one thing that's more beautiful and more meaningful than creating life, it's resurrecting life. If there's one thing that's more beautiful and more meaningful than making something that's entirely new, it's renewing the thing that you've made. It's coming from behind. It's a champion that's battered but not beaten. Way more beautiful than a champion that is unscathed. You follow me? That's the Easter story all over. That's really the kind of story that God is telling with humanity on this planet. Creation is wonderful and powerful, but resurrection might even be more beautiful because in a way it has more love in it. I mean, creation was a a statement of, of love, but resurrection is a statement of not giving up on love, not giving up on good things that you made. 
Is that not more beautiful? Is that not more meaningful? And does that not apply to your life? Do you not have things in your life that are wonderful, that are powerful, but that you have to figure out how to not give up on? And isn't that where the love is at that moment, the moment of potential resurrection? We all go through that, right? Easter uh, is, is foremost a celebration of, of this fellow Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him. Snaps to Jesus. It's Easter. Oh, yeah. Worship snaps. And in Scripture, in the, in the section of Scripture that we call the Gospels, we get the story of his very meaningful life. This, this guy, he showed up and he demonstrated this thing that he called the kingdom of God, the order of heaven on earth. And, you know, he brought heaven to sick people. There's no sick people in heaven, so they were all healed. He brought the order of heaven to poor people, uh, restoring them, bringing them justice, and bringing them provision miraculously if necessary, like in the story of the loaves and the fishes. Uh, it was a very meaningful life that he led. But then we get the story of his death. And it turns out that his life was very meaningful. His death at least as meaningful. But when you looked at his death, the meaning wasn't as immediately obvious, right, as the good stuff that was going down during his life. It became clear with the resurrection that it was a very meaningful death. And, and that's the way it is. If you live a life of godly purpose, then even your deaths are meaningful. That's one great way about how the Lord has set up the universe. But his death was also meaningful in the arc of the story that we've been studying as a church. I'm talking about the whole arc of the Bible story, the story of God and humanity. His death and his manner of death had a very special place in that story as well. And it was a story that, that was told over thousands of years, had been recorded by the time Jesus died for at least 1,500 or 2,000 years by, by that point. It wasn't told by one person. It was told across generations, across cultures, across land masses, often by people who were not really excited about the story that they were telling. In other words, it couldn't possibly have been faked. Nobody can tell a subtle story over thousands of years. But it fit together so beautifully, so meaningfully. When we talk about Jesus' death, we talk about it in terms of a sacrifice. And uh, the concept of sacrifice was something that, that God worked into the story of God and humanity very early on. <clears throat> in, our, uh, in our journey through Scripture uh, recently, we've already talked about the story of Abraham, who's kind of known as the father of faith. He was a guy that God came to. He was in a very confused, polytheistic, pantheistic culture, and God said, hey, uh, let me pull you out of that. You come follow me. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'm going to have you exercise faith in just one God. You're going to be my guy. I'm going to be your God, and, and uh, between us, we're going to make a whole people of faith. That's how the story, and then it, uh, that's how the story developed, and then at one uh, very profound moment in the story, Abraham has had a son, a son of promise, a son that he was expecting, and then God says, hey, uh, now I'm going to have you sacrifice your son. This is the story of Abraham and, and the sacrifice of Isaac. Perhaps you know the story. Abraham takes Isaac up to a mountaintop. And, and, and Abraham is, we're, you know, we're told much later in, in the Bible that he was thinking, well, you know, God might have me kill this child. Maybe God will resurrect the child. I don't know. 
but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient to God. In that day and age, human sacrifice was quite prevalent. At the last second, of course, God intervenes, and uh, Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, Abraham, speaking prophetically at one point in the story, says to his son Abraham, uh, to his son Isaac, uh, don't worry, son, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And those words turned out to be prophetic because Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed. He was not the father that sacrificed his son. Many, many centuries later, God would be the father who sacrificed his son. And indeed, resurrection would figure into the story. But that whole thing, centuries, centuries before Christ, was a foreshadowing of something that would happen on the very mountain that Abraham and Isaac were standing on back in the day. Who could have planned that? Who could have faked that? It's an astounding tale. Literary excellence told over many centuries. The, the, the concept of sacrifice gets developed again when we get into that chunk of Scripture that has to do with the law, you know, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that follow. This is what we talked about in last week's sermon. Many of you may recall at the heart of the law was this, this sacrificial system. So the law established standards. And then built into the law was the expectation that people would foul up the standards. Amen? Oh, yeah, because God knew who he was dealing with. Come on. And so right at the heart of the system of the law, he built in this, this sacrifice system. Like, look, you guys are going to screw up. And when you screw up, it's okay. You're just going to have to pay a pen penalty. You're going to have to sacrifice, you know, a lamb on the altar or something like that, something that's valuable to you, um, which, was, which was brilliant. Because if if things are going to be okay between you and God, two things have got to be true. Uh, one, the truth has got to be clear. You can't pretend that you didn't screw up. That's where the law comes in. And then the other thing needs to be true is that you need to know that you can get forgiven, that it can be taken care of, that it's not going to be a big thing between you and God. That's where the sacrifice comes in. Truth plus generosity. Truth, definitely. You have to be clear on it. You can't pretend, because if you're pretending in any relationship, then it's not a good relationship, is it? That's the law. And then the, the forgiveness, the generosity, the grace is the word that Christians have come to use for that. I want you to read through the section of the law from a book called Leviticus. Uh, if uh, you're pregnant and looking for a baby name, Leviticus. And this is the section of the law in which, in which God uh, is explaining to his people how the sacrifice works, right? He's made clear that, look, you're going to screw up, and we need to be clear when you have fouled things up, when you've been mean to other people, when you've cheated and stuff like that. Everybody needs to be honest about that, but, but as, as you honestly realize your mistake, then, then this is what's going to do. This is what you're going to do. And here's, here's the passage. Leviticus 5, as a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering. You have to pay a ticket. And the priest shall make atonement for them 
for their sin. So, you know, lambs, goats, those were, those were the currency of wealth back in the day. So, you know, you sacrifice a lamb or a goat, that's a fairly significant sacrifice. So it's like, you know, paying, paying the court a penalty, and then there's going to be atonement. Then it's going to be okay. Then it's going to be okay. However, it goes on. Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin. One for a sin offering and one for a, a burnt offering. Slightly different classifications. Not important right now. But if you're going to pay a penalty, you're going to pay something valuable, I want a whole sheep or I want a whole goat. Unless you can't afford it, then I will accept two pigeons. So that's, that's interesting. But it goes on. If, however, they cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons... They are to bring as an offering for their sin a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour for a sin offering. Uh, they must not put oil or incense in it because it is a sin offering. So you're either going to bring the super valuable sheep or a goat, or you're going to bring a chicken dinner, or you're going to bring a small bowl of cereal. That's how the system works. Think about this a minute. Think about this system. Think about this system of paying the penalty. The way it's constructed, what does it tell you? Does it tell you, A, God demands blood. He's picky. He ensures that the penalty will be paid when we sin. He's a fussy God. Or does it tell you, paying a penalty is useful, but God will do whatever he needs to do in order to reassure you that things between you and him are okay. Which fits? Is this a picky God or is this a generous God? I mean, a handful of cereal, people. This is not a God who's hung up on detail. This is not a God who has bloodlust. The, the vegetarian option of sacrifice. Thank you. Amen, brother. I was getting there. You stole my thunder. Right, the sacrificial system is not mean, and it's not, it's not rigid even, you know? It, it's flexible. At its heart is a statement of generosity. We have to be clear that you've screwed up, God is saying. And then we have to be clear that things are okay between us, so I want you to make a gesture so that you feel reassured. I almost don't care what the gesture is. Bring me a handful of cornflakes for Pete's sake. Oh, Peter wasn't alive then saying Pete's sake, but you know what I mean. I just, I just want you to feel reassured. That's the story. That's what the sacrifice is for. You following me? Go ahead, say amen. Well, even while people were getting the hang of this very interesting sacrificial system, um, God was dropping hints that it should be understood in a, in a broader context of meaning with him. And in particular, he started giving prophecies about someone who would come and somehow fit into and supersede the sacrificial system. There's a very famous prophecy from Isaiah 53. It often gets read around Easter. It's called a messianic prophecy because it was about the Messiah. It was about Jesus. You can read along with me. It goes like this. In describing this promised one who would come, it says, 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God. We misread the sacrifice as punishment. We should have read it as reassurance. Yet he can, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, trust, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. This was about reassurance and peace all along, but we didn't realize it. And by his wounds we are healed. When we see them, we start to get it. We start to get healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's the truth. Each of us has turned our own way. That's the truth. And the Lord has, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's made a way. He's done a reassuring thing. Of course, this is about Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Um, we, know, uh, we know what happened during uh, Passover week about uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, this fellow Jesus was executed as if, as if he himself were a Passover lamb, which is a whole other literary symbolism that was woven into the story. He was executed in a sacrificial way. This is a scenario just dripping with, with meaning for anyone who was tracking, for anyone who saw him killed and understood. But the fact was, no one was tracking back in the day. Everybody misunderstood it, as the prophecy indicates. Jesus' death was, was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and bunches of other Old Testament prophecies as well. Jesus... Uh, Jesus' death was designed to sort of fulfill the sacrificial system, but not to fulfill, you know, like the details of the sacrificial system, but to fulfill the purpose of the sacrificial system, which was to do two things, remember, to get us to recognize the truth and to get us to feel reassured that it's okay between God and us. And the thing was, if you were standing before the cross on the day that Jesus was killed, and if you assumed that this was a man from God, or that this indeed was the Son of God, and you would have looked upon him as he hung on the cross that day, he would have been just battered beyond belief, almost unrecognizable due to the torture that they'd given him before the execution. He would have been stripped naked. He would have been hanging in front of everybody, naked, broken, bleeding, suffering. And if you looked on that and you think this is a sacrifice that God himself is providing, that man right there is an expression of God. If you would have thought that, then you would have said to yourself, that God is freakishly humble. That God is not interested in lording it over anyone. There's no way that that God is a fussy person in any definition of that word. This is about reassurance. This is about peace, as the prophecy from Isaiah says. An astounding story. Uh, right after the resurrection, uh, Jesus um, visits his, his, his people in, in a number of different scenarios that we read in, in the Gospels. I mean, resurrection. I mean, who saw that coming? Jesus had predicted it, but again, nobody was really tracking it, you know. Maybe Abraham had thought about something like it many, many centuries previous, but it wasn't something that anybody wasn't, wasn't expecting or was expecting. It had been a, a ruinous journey up to that point to see him killed and to come back to life. 
it sort of speaks to, I think, our whole human condition. Think of what we did in Genesis and the fall and the ruin it brought and the death and the destruction uh, for centuries. And even now, it seems so often that death has won. Death has won, but not forever. The resurrection was uh, a moment filled with meaning. Uh, Jesus takes it farther. Right after the resurrection, we read the story from John 20. You can follow along. On the evening of the first day of the week, which is to say uh, the evening of the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they were still afraid, you see. Jesus came and stood among them and said, well, he said what was prophesied. He said, peace be with you. He said, hey, don't you get it? Don't you get what God is doing? Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side that indeed he was the fellow who was killed. They weren't imagining anything. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Just to drive the point home, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now that's a weird thing to say. Peace be with you. Now I got a job for you. I got a job for you. And here begins the rest of the human story. Here begins us carrying the message of peace forward. Hey, peace be with you. I've got a job for you. And with that, he breathed on them, mimicking God breathing on Adam at the beginning and creating life. This is a renewal. This is a new life. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive God's very Spirit. Receive the presence of God. And then he, he went on and said, if you forgive anyone their sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is just a momentous interaction, I think, if, if you follow it. Jesus, the, the sacrifice, right? The sacrifice that God provided. The sacrifice that said in an unmistakable way, or what should have been an unmistakable way, hey, things between you and God are okay. Things between you and God are okay. He made a way. All right? Then he said, I've got a job for you. Whoever you forgive is forgiven, right? The sacrificial system in the beginning was about forgiveness. Now Jesus is basically just giving us that authority and saying, go and forgive people. Now, what I want is for the people of God just to be forgiving like crazy. We won't rely on, on the sacrificial system anymore. That's done. That part of the story is finished. It's wrapped up. You guys get it. You get what I did. You get what the illustration was for. Do you understand what the system was about? The whole thing was just meant to, to convince you that things are okay between you and God. Recognize the truth that you fouled up, but recognize the truth of God's generosity and love. That's all good now. That's all good now, right? That chapter is closed. Now go convince people of that. Right? Now that is how your trust is going to be worked out. Just forgive people willy-nilly. Sit down on the bus, forgive the person to your left, forgive the person to your right, and they will be forgiven. That's how easy it is. But he didn't just do that. He gave them the presence of God's Spirit because that's really what forgiveness is about, isn't it? That's what getting right with God it's about, was about. It's about hanging out with God again. And he said, not only do you guys get to forgive people, but you get to share the very presence of God with them. You get to lay hands on them. You get to fill them with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We just recently had one of our Holy Spirit retreats. How many of you were on it? 
The guys did such a great job. I had very little to do with this retreat. The Supernatural Ministry team itself led it. Um, all the folks that lead the prayer line, just sharing in the presence of God, man. One privilege that we have in the kingdom is just sharing the, the physical manifestation of the presence of God with one another. Because forgiveness is easy. Because we don't have to worry about any gaps anymore. Beautiful story. It all fits together, even though it was told over literally thousands of years. Uh, even for those who want to argue against the phys physical resurrection of Jesus, I think they have to admit that this story could not have been faked. I mean, the way that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53, you know, fulfilled the obvious intent of the sacrificial system set up in Leviticus 5. I mean, there were thousands of years separating, and yet the story hangs together with literary perfection. Nobody could have faked that. Uh, the best proof of the truth of the story is the storytelling itself, the way that it went down. But I digress. When I consider the complications of the story of Jesus' life and death or the larger story of God and humanity in the Bible, when I consider the complications of the system of the law and the sacrifice and the whole Jesus drama and then our role in the continuing mission of, of passing the, the message along, all of that stuff is rich, but it's complex and it took a long time. And I have to ask myself, why did God do it this way? You know, what? I mean, it's a great story, but why, why did he do it this way in particular? And I don't really have an authoritative answer to that, but while I can imagine a simpler, less painful, less traumatic way for God to get his story across, it would be hard for me to imagine a more beautiful way or a more meaningful way. It's a story that's perfectly imperfect, if you know what I mean. It's one of those stories. It's tough enough that I, I wish, it, wish it, would been, it had been simpler. I wish the story of, of humanity didn't involve like the fall and the death and the destruction and war and death and, and pestilence and, and all that stuff. Um, I could do without the suffering in the world. Resurrection is awesome. Uh, but I could do without death in the world, you know what I mean? Um, but I'm not the author of, of the story. And when I take a step back and read the whole thing, I have to admit I can see the meaning in it. I have to admit that this is the most beautiful story I've ever heard of. This is a powerful story. All the more beautiful because it's just filled with imperfection and messiness. And sometimes I can't help but ask a similar question of my life. Have you ever looked at your life and said, why did God do it this way? Anybody? Because things can get kind of messy. The complications, the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the deaths, the defeats, the overcoming, the rug out from under your feet, and the struggling again. And maybe the resurrections too. Such drama, though. It's so complicated. 
And I conclude of my life that God really isn't interested in me having a simple story. Can I get an amen? I don't think he's interested in me having a simple story, but he might well be interested in me having a beautiful and meaningful story. And by definition, that means that it has to be a very, very imperfect one. Maybe you can relate. In the Bible, there's a story uh, of the resurrection uh, told in the Gospels of Jesus rising from the dead. But I notice when I read the Gospel accounts of the resurrection that they are always told with an, kind of an open-endedness to it. There's always a provocation of faith. The first gospel recorded was the gospel of Mark, and in the original manuscripts, the gospel of Mark cuts off right after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, women discover Jesus' empty tomb, and they run, and they tell the disciples, he's not here. He has risen. Boom! And then it cut off as if to say, now do you accept it or not? Do you accept that he's a God of resurrection or not? And that's, that's where the trust comes in for us even now, do you accept that God is a God of resurrection or not? And maybe that's a very practical question that you need to insert into your life this morning. Maybe your story is really messy, and the question that you need to grapple with is this. Do you accept the God of resurrection or not? Do you accept the God of meaning, or do you insist on a God of perfection? (laughs) I live in that spot oftentimes. Remember, the whole story of God and humanity is about developing uh, trust. There's probably a story in, in your life that you would not have selected. You wouldn't have told your own story in the way it's being told. But if you stick with it, you will find resurrection and meaning in it. You will find something beautiful in it. Believe it or not, that's the crux of the issue. That's the cross of the issue for you. There's always death. There are always deaths. There are always disappointments. There are always sorts of defeats, and yet we always emerge undefeated if we stick with it and accept. And then your story will be all the more beautiful for it. What do you think? Yeah? God of resurrection, God of imperfection, same thing, I think. No resurrection without death, no meaning without struggle, no Easter without Good Friday. Those of us who went to the Good Friday service got these envelopes. Did you guys have them? Did you bring them today? Pull them out if you do. If you didn't go to the Good Friday service, uh, take five seconds right now and feel intense regret for not going. I'll just give give you some time. All right, that's over with. It's Easter. No time for more regret than that. Go ahead. Uh, What we did, uh, you can open your envelope. We had these uh, cards that we filled out at at the Good Friday service, and there were three questions, two of which we should have already written answers to. The first one said, in your life currently, what uncertainty looms for you? Where specifically do you feel the pressure of a great unknown? Write your answer. And so those of you who are at the Good Friday service, 
wrote down your answer. It's like, well, this is an uncertainty or this is an unknown. This is a darkness that I'm struggling with. And then the second question read, in spite of these uncertainties in life, what's one specific way in which you sense God's got you covered? If you're not sure, ask God to tell you some specific way in which he's got you covered. I believe that was Jesus' experience at Good Friday. He, he knew that he was to be killed, and he himself predicted, prophesied that he would be resurrected after three days. But still in Gethsemane, he prayed so hard he bled from his forehead. The whole execution by torture thing stressed him out. He knew what was coming, but the trip to get there was still very intimidating, even for Jesus. So he prayed and he prayed, and I believe he held on. He held on to, to the truth, to one truth, to the confidence that God could resurrect in the end. God could resurrect in the end. So often life is a battle to hold on to the, the specific truth that we need most. So we had people write down one specific way in which they sensed that God had them covered. And then there was the third question. It went like this. What's one action you could or should take given the specific way that God's got you covered? What's one action you could take in light of the specific truth, the reassurance that you feel like you have from God? This is often how the battle of life shapes up. Do we live according to our fear and uncertainty? Or do we act according to the confidence that we have? Even if it's not a total confidence, if we are confident in one thing, that's the thing that should determine the course of our life. But we didn't write down an answer uh, to that question, uh, the thing that we should do out of confidence. Instead, we put it in the tomb, the manila tomb, in this case, and sealed it up. Open your tomb. Take it out. Those of you uh, now who have the third question open, write it down. What's the thing that you're going to do to move forward? God is going to tell you if he hasn't told you already. I'll give you 60 seconds. For those of you who didn't do the exercise of the Good Friday service, let me tell you this. Jesus is resurrected. He has, uh, in one way, shape, or form, come to you this morning. He has shared life with you anew. And he has said, you have a job to do. Your job is to convince the rest of the world that forgiveness is easy. That generosity from God is easy. Easy to get. Go out and forgive people. Start with the people that have offended you. <laughs> That's a great place to start. But then generalize to everyone. Be an agent of forgiveness in the world and then be an agent of God's presence in the world. The only question is, how are you going to do that? And you have to boil it down to the specific next step. Is it true? It's always been about, what are you going to do about it? Because life is a challenge. Life is action. Go ahead and write or contemplate What's next? The grave is open. Resurrection is possible. What's next? Resurrection is there for anyone with the faith to accept it. The story is true 
for anyone with the faith to accept it. Do you live according to your fear and uncertainty, or do you live according to your faith? Do you live according to your uncertainty, or do you live according to your faith? I think your answer to that question determines how beautiful a person you are. I think your answer to that question determines how meaningful you are as a person. There's a great invitation in that question. Father God, I pray that you would bring resurrection change to the parts of life where we need it. I pray, Lord, that you would bring beauty and meaning into the depths of even our struggles. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show up in your scarred beauty broken and battered, but very much alive and moving. And I pray that you give us a job to do, that you would call us forward in this incredible story that you're telling through humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen.